Here we go. It's time to shift our schools. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools podcast. Shifting Our Schools is created and produced by Jeff Udick and David Carpenter. Shifting Our Schools podcast is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 share like license. In other words, if you like what you hear, go ahead and use it. So you were saying, right. David, before we get going. Yeah. So, so Chris, if you could jump into the idea that here you're at this very shifted, in, I shouldn't even call it institution, this learning community. And our question is, once shifted, where do we go next? So looking down the road, what's on the horizon for your, your students and uh, your community there? Um, yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, there's a couple ways to answer the question. I think um, first is obviously next year's our first senior class, so um, we're already starting to sort of look at, look at that and look at what that looks like. And um, so the thing that actually we're supposed to uh, have another back meeting about, in fact, the workshop about yesterday, which we did because of the snow day, was we're looking at our capstone project, which is a year-long independent study project that the seniors do. Um, really trying to hammer out what that looks like, start the senior, the juniors in the process of brainstorming what just broad topic areas they might want to study so that way we can start lining up outside mentors, um, building an online repository where people can set up to volunteer for that. Um, so that's the sort of bare bones uh, or the sort of very practical what's next is uh, figuring out what senior year looks like and obviously continuing to get better at the things that we are doing um, for us as an urban district because the rest of the world maybe hasn't shifted as much as we'd like. I think that um, the big question for us always remains trying to nail down a, a sustainable funding source for our laptops. Um, we're always sort of looking at where can we find the money for next year versus, or while concurrently, looking at where can we find the money in general for sustainability. And that's a huge, huge issue for us. On a more sort of theoretical sense, I think that um, what we're doing with Educon and, and and what that represents to our community is a sense of sort of where we're going. And that is that the SLA community really takes uh, very seriously its notion of being an R&D school, both for the district and, and obviously for a much larger audience than that or community than that. And so it's a question of how can we continue to learn, how can we continue to work with people and learn with them, and, and what have you. Excellent. So you talk about funding. How, how, how much of that plays into your school? And I, you know, one thing I think we forget about internationally, at least, or that I forget about is, is this, the whole concept of funding. I mean, our kids are paying $22,000, $23,000 a year to go to our school. And even in a down economy, we... I mean, we are in a down economy, and basically all we're doing is not hiring teachers for people, for kids that we don't, that we expect not to have. But I think it's interesting because are you relying for, now are you in a one-to-one laptop situation, or 
are you trying to get there? And where does your funding come from then? How are you funding that? We are we are a Wonder Woman laptop. Uh, we're a Wonder Woman laptop program. Um, the first two years of the school, it was funded through district funds. Um, the district has gone through quite a lot of uh, financial hardship over the last few years. Last year, we had our partner museum, the Franklin Institute, pick up the, the money, which is incredible. And this year, um, we have leads on a couple of different ways we may want to fund it. And we're hoping there's a state grant called Classrooms for the Future, which we are hoping to be eligible for this year. And we're hoping the, the funding at the state level doesn't get cut for that because we think that would be a great way to fund it. Um, we obviously have Are you yeah, always about a year? Are you always about a year from being cut off or? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that we know, for example, though, that you know, um, we know that right now we're at Mac school, and while that's lovely, we know that if the money were to change, we could go to the netbooks and, and do it for a lot less. And we think that if, if it, that having a $160,000 price tag or $170,000 price tag is tough with the max. I think if we had to go to a network model, we could probably do it for about $60,000. And that I feel pretty comfortable that if, if we had to raise that quickly, we could do that. Obviously, um, I mean, we, we, tried, we have some grant money that we could use. Um, Educon makes some money for the school, which is, is the window reserve, a rainy day fund that in case we can't make our laptop fund, we use it for that. Obviously, it's not much money, but um, we, we have a number of places that we can cobble together that kind of money and then, and then mobilize our parent body to get the rest if we need it to. Hmm. Now, is that something you're, you're thinking about? Or what came out of Educon? I mean, you're coming off this great conference again for the second year in a row. Congratulations. And, Thank you. Um, is netbooks were netbooks something that were being discussed as maybe the future as a way to get laptops in the hands of kids? Um, you know, I'm sure those conversations were happening. They weren't in any of the rooms I was in. It just so happens. Um, but I think everybody talks about that. I think that that's that's the reality, um, especially in communities where kids don't have the computers at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a possibility. I mean, for us, it's you know you can get online and use Web 2.0 tools and you can use, you know, the memory of all the tools you have available to you on Mac, then, you know, you're going to do that. And, you know, it goes back to the idea of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good for us. Um, if you have to go there, and it's better to have a hundred and, you know, you know, better to have a group of nine members each with a netbook in their hand than to have 30 Macs and have it rotating around through 120 kids. Yeah. Hmm. So, well, it, how, what, are, what are netbooks like in the States? Um, there was a, there was a article that came out from Australia saying that netbooks now make up 10% of all laptops in Australia, which is interesting because they were zero a year ago. I mean, we're talking about a pretty new technology and people are jumping on the bandwagon pretty fast as this being like the future and the way to go. Are you seeing that same kind of adoption in the States as far as, you know, <coughs> Australia is saying about 10% of the population now has netbooks, and that's kind of the way they see the trend going there. Do you see that same trend? Not, I mean, myself not being in America. Do you see that trend happening in America? Do you see more netbooks showing up on desks? Uh, I think it'll be slower. I don't think America will be quite as, as quick to adopt. I think partially because 
uh, and I don't, this is complete guesswork on my part. So I have that I can stop whatsoever. Um, I said this in the penetration of the laptop was a little deeper in America. So as a result, people feel a little less likely to give up what they already have used to. Um, but I think it's going to happen. I think that, you know, I think, I don't know. I mean, I can imagine a return to sort of that docking station idea. For me, I don't like having more than one computer, right? So right. if they want a network, you know, either your data lives in the cloud or if you see where you have a, a wireless server at home or something. So that way, you're always your data is always synced up. I think that when you can do that, I mean, having a quick little machine that you can throw in your bag and you can travel is wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's great. Chris, let me ask you more on the, the sustainability there. Um, I know Brent Loken has chatted with you some. He was there at your conference and enjoyed it a lot. And he kept comparing our school in Sinshu to what you're doing there, very similar practices. And here we really struggle with our parent community often being very um, conservative and just not have not having much experience with American style uh, education. Or, and if we break it even further down into constructivism and discovery learning. How how does it work with you being an R&D school that it seems like it's part of your mission to pilot and try new things? And I just wonder how far do you feel you can go and still have enough support that you don't lose some parents or some community members that go, hey, you're just going too far for us. Uh, is that a part of the discussion or do you just have total support in what you're doing? No, I think that... Um well, I, mean, I think, you know, you never assume support. I think you have to build it. I think that's not relational trust on one level. So um, I would hate to think if we school something out and say, all right, parents and students, here it is, fate accomplished. Um, obviously, I think that as a school of choice here in Philadelphia, parents are choosing something that's different. Um, but, you know, we also say that you can never be revolutionaries at the extent of your kids. So I think we always try and make sure that what we're doing we believe can still get kids into college, can still do all of that. And, um, you know, those are the things you have to worry about. I think that if we push too hard too fast, it would be difficult. I mean, we got our parents to buy into the idea um, that uh, we shouldn't give AP classes. And that was a real mm-hmm. challenge. And But we did it because... We were able to do it because we said to the parents, this is a project-oriented school, and why would our highest-level classes end in a test, which would be a repudiation of that pedagogy? And those parents bought into that. And I think that they did it because we talked to them about what the alternatives was, were how we weren't going to disadvantage their kids um, through that. And so, you know, with any of those steps, you have to educate, you have to listen, you have to compromise. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, most sacred trust in the world as a parent letting you educate their child. I mean, I mean you have to take that pretty seriously. So how, how much does your parents support and bringing the parents along in this, in the way that you do things at SLA, how, how much does that have to play in with how far you've been able to, to move that school? Um, I would imagine it's pretty far. I mean, we're, we're very lucky. We have a wonderful, amazing parents who I think you know, I, I, you know, and again, the nice thing is, is that parents in Philadelphia were listening and looking for something different. Yeah. So as a result, um, SLA very much fits a niche. Um, so I think that 
because of that, we're able to, you know, we're able to prepare. So we're excited for something different. I think that as we move forward, something that we're already making sure that we try and do as much as possible is make sure that we don't become in people's mind just a good school. Because when that happens and people just send it, send you to their school because it's a good school, they don't understand the sort of uniqueness of mission. And um, so a lot of what we try and do is educate parents and um, teach them about what it is that we're trying to do. Um, How are you educating but, parents? Are you holding? Do you hold? Are yes. you holding constantly holding parent sessions? Are you? Is it an after-school thing? Is it a nightly thing? Do you have teachers giving presentations? Is it kids? How are you trying to yes. engage the parents? <laughs> in that? All of all of the above. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of that, all of I think the most important one is that you know, um, parents, you know, we we get about ninety percent participation for New Parent Night, um, which happens in May. Um, once we have our you know our next class, and we give them a thirty-seven page curriculum guide, which is an incredibly sort of extensive guide as to what the school is. We have them meet, um, we have them meet all the teachers. We have the kids meet their advisors. So it's a really very extensive process by which um, we're able to start that process. And then we have twice yearly parent-teacher conferences that are run by an advisor and the student, uh, so that way parents are not. Um, running around and trying to get 30 seconds to 60 different teachers would rather have 15 to 20 minutes with their child's advisor. There's that process that continues. Um, we have, you know, this, this should be just fun place in every high school in, in America and, and in any sort of part of the world that has decent penetration of internet connectivity into the home. We send out the announcements over the listserv every, you know, every other, you know, every twice a week whenever we do advisory. And that kind of thing just keeps parents involved. We have a very, you know, we give them access to the students' homeworks, things like that via Moodle and Drupal, and all of it helps build their community. And then we have a very open door policy. I mean, we have parents in our schools all the time, which is wonderful. I mean, we had 20 parents, which is, you know, more than 5% of the, pop- of the population of the school, volunteered all kinds of hours helping them get to Commonwealth. Yeah. So, you know, and, and obviously I think, um, you know, one of the parents spoke to me and said, you know, watching the panel discussion Sunday morning um, was it was an education for her and taught her a lot about school and education and, and what we believe in contrast with what other people believe in reaffirmed faith that she sent her kids to the right school, which is fun to hear. One of the things we were talking a little bit in the chat room was uh, this whole idea of about parent buy-in and that one of the feelings I get is that schools think um, they overlook the, they overlook the the power of engaging parents in the conversation. Do you think that's, do you think that could be a reason why more schools aren't, you know, making these, making these shifts in pedagogy and and trying to really deepen it because they, a either don't know how to engage the parent community, B maybe don't have this, the parent support, or is it because as, as administrators, you truly might not understand as an administrator, you might not truly understand how all of it works anyway. And so because of that, you don't engage the community. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, for me, again, I just think it's such a sacred trust that, um, these are, you know, these are their children. And as a parent, you know, I know how, um, you know, how agonizing the choice of choosing a kindergarten has been for my wife and I, and, um, 
you just have to remember, I mean, this is, there's nothing more sacred than that. You are educating someone else's child. And I think that if you go with that, and if you try and remember that, um, well, you have to get parent buy in everything you do. And obviously, it takes time, and it's pain in the neck, and sometimes parents aren't always the partners we want them to be. Um, but I just think that's a real responsibility, not just with 2.0 schools and changing learning, but even if you're doing the most traditional high school in the world, um, I think your parents should be pet by in and, and have the opportunity to have that connection. It's powerful. It's um, recruiting season right now internationally, and we've actually got a lot of administrators at all the international schools that at this moment in time are headed to the United States to do some recruiting. And so my question was, how much do the teachers have to do with, how much do your teachers have to do with this change in sustainability of your programs there? Do you have a lot of turnover? And what do you look for in a teacher that is coming to SLA, and if you're going out and you have to you have to replace the teacher, what kind of skills are you looking for at your school specifically when you're out recruiting for a new teacher? Um, we're looking for uh, obviously shared pedagogical vision. Um, you know, I, I think that we're looking for we're going to be real curriculum planners. Um, unlike a lot of schools that ask people to do a sample lesson, we actually do more than that. We send them that, that family notebook that I spoke about earlier, and we say to them, essentially, this is our vision of education, and we would like to prepare a unit plan that uh, shows up where your vision and our vision might intersect, because we really need people to be curriculum designers. Um, we're looking for people who obviously have a progressive pedagogy, and we're looking for people who are open to learn. Um, the first thing it says on our um, job application if your qualification is concerned, is um, you have to believe you teach students before you can study us. And that speaks to the ethos of the school. That speaks to what we're about. We want people who love their subjects. We want people who love the kids even more. Um, and that's a big part of what we're looking for. Um, you know, you need people who are passionate about this. And you need people who are open. And you need people who are flexible. You need people who are collaborative. We've interviewed people who... We definitely thought, well, you know, I'm sure they're a wonderful, amazing, close-the-door teacher, but we don't see them sitting around the table with us. We don't see them coming into our community and being a part of that. And we've let those people go. And that wasn't easy because it's hard to sit there and interview an amazing teacher and go, gosh, you're going to be amazing and you probably change the lives of some kids. But um, sort of close-the-door maverick stuff wouldn't work here. So that's a big part of it as well. On the, on the uh, vision side, jumping out a little bit to the second half of the essential question, one of the things I was chatting with Brent the, uh, just yesterday, and he just said the kids you have there, just so curious and enthusiastic and engaged, and, and I was reading your blog post about your 20 parents, as you said, they were so involved in the Educon. What Are you getting some feedback and ideas from the kids that are helping build the vision for a couple years down the road, I know your your plate is so full, and you you've got to get the funding, and you've only been around now uh, a short time. But I, I'm just wondering, in the in, uh, the democratic nature of your school, what kind of ideas are percolating from the kids for the future? What's coming up? No, there? we don't. Yeah, we don't really listen to the children that often. Their voices aren't very important. So, no, um, <laughs> you know, um. I think on some level, a lot of it is right now just trying to keep on keeping on. 
Um, I think that that's, I think that the kids, um, important voice and listening to them as we um, try and make sure that this model doesn't kill them. Because honestly, when you have five projects due towards the end of every quarter, that could be a little much. So working with the kids, listening to their voices to make sure that, that um, we keep making it sustainable for them as well, I think is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the most important place where the kids' voices are determining the future is concerned is they sit on the admissions panel. So every student who goes to SLA has been interviewed by an SLA student and um, their voice in helping us choose the next generation of kids is important. They're on the hiring committee for faculty and they take that job insanely seriously. And um, we will definitely, as we roll out, you know, one of the reasons that it's only February of junior year, we're rolling out capstone documents to them now is to get their feedback on. And to get them to say, here's what we think, here's what we don't think, and da, da, da. And there's, you know, a huge discussion that is brewing that I started, the kids have picked up on, on looking at the way we continue with, um, we have a lab code uniform policy that is not always uniformly enforced, and we're getting their buy-in. Like, should the teachers be the one enforcing that, or should this be something that the kids say they want to do? Um, and so that, that's another piece of the puzzle that I think is really important. Um, so they, they have their hands in everything. As far as the big idea of vision is concerned, like changes we would make, um, mm-hmm. I, I think mostly what we're trying to do now is, is get that first year and get a concrete vision of a four-year sequence in place. Um, so I'm not sure that, you know, yeah, I'm not sure that thinking much beyond that. I think that when we have that and then we can move from sort of creation to refinement, I think it'll have a lot more ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, David, at your school, how's the hiring done? Is it all done by your head of school or superintendent or by a committee of administrators? Because I, I just find it interesting. I mean, Chris is talking about having a very open kind of hiring process where the kids are invited. There's a panel of, of both the administrators and teachers and students when it comes to you know both interviewing teachers and kids that come to the school. How how's it done at your school? Is it is it just the typical international way that the superintendent or head of school goes off to a career fair, hires what he needs, and brings him back? Well, uh, last year it was, and it, we mirror so much of SLA. We, uh, this is our first uh, our first senior class this year. We're a very young school, and last year uh, Brent and Grant, our two administrators, did go to Iowa and. Uh, the, the hiring there, and now this year we have some candidates that are on island, and we have three faculty members that will be interviewing them, and we're going to uh, have principal candidates coming in as well, and that'll be the normal process of the parents and the teachers. Uh, and one of the things that Brent had really put forward uh, before he left, he's moved on since. It was really to get the students involved in the hiring as well. So in time, and I think maybe this year, we would bring on a student or two um, to ask questions and share in that process. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's interesting because as as we've talked in other episodes about the, the use of Skype, and as somebody was just saying in the chat room, you know, could you Skype them in? There's been three, I mean, I've seen three Skype interviews take place up in kind of my office area where we have a Skype room and 
there's been three interviews and it's been packed with adults, but there has not been one kid that's been in there yes. while parents. And, and that's so powerful. You know, why couldn't you yes. grab an 11th grader or 12th grader or 10th grader out of class and say, hey, come sit at this interview and tell us what you think of this teacher? And why? Well, what's fun for. Go ahead. Well, I was saying what's fun for us is what we try and do, and in most cases, have really been most class, is that student sits in on the interview for all the interviews of a, of a subject area. So if you're hiring a history teacher, um, you are in that interview for you know, two, three, ten interviews. And that, that makes you a really authentic member of that team. And, and we do consensus-based hiring here. We don't hire anybody until everybody around the table says, all right, I can live with this, and let's go forward. Um, and the kids take that job incredibly seriously. We had, um, you know, just one quick anecdote. We had a, uh, a teacher interview last year, and it was the kid who asked the kind of fitting questions before we could. You know, and it was when we were sitting there going, like, oh, we don't know, and we think this guy, maybe, and, and we all sort of talked about it afterwards in our heads, we were like, well, maybe, and I don't know, and, da, da, da. and it was the student that asked the two questions that, like, while we were having a con, that was, you know, said, yeah, that's great, but this is my school, and what would you do if this happened, and what would you do if that happened? Hmm. And that person's answers just weren't good enough, and it was the kid who was like, no, 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 I'm making sure that, you know, yeah. uh, he sort of looked at us and said, I don't, I don't. You guys aren't answering the hard questions yet. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So where where does SLA go from here? If we're talking about sustainability, you know, you've had two successful Educon conferences. And I, I do want to talk about that just a little bit before we leave and, and kind sure. of how you set it up and stuff. But where, where are you focusing as the leader of this school? Where where are you trying to take the school and what are your hopes for, for where SLA is going? Um, I mean, again, I, you know, I think that I always go back to the four things I want for us. I like kids. I want them to be thoughtful, wise, passionate, and kind. And for us at this point, I think it's about, like I said earlier, um, building in that senior year, looking at what that looks like, trying to get some sustainability for laptop funding. But then otherwise, just trying to get good at what we do or better at what we do. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I couldn't be happier with where we are right now. Um, I, I don't think... In my wildest dreams, we would have been as far along after three years in developing the common culture that we have yeah. and developing the richness of the curriculum in just in three years' time that we have. So we've exceeded my expectations and our very high expectations. But now the question is, is you know, if this is where we are three years from now, we won't be good enough anymore. Right. So it's about um, continuing to develop that shared language. I, you know, I think that we have done a lot to make an incredibly collegial community um, I don't think the systems and structures that we have placed, all the systems and structures are in place to, to sustain that long term. So, like, this year we started personal learning communities, but we haven't done as much with them as I'd like. I think that's got to become a major part of the school. Um, I think continuing to examine the way we use the schedule to influence pedagogy is important, and I think we've got a big challenge coming this year as we get that fourth year and start to have some singleton boutique kind of 12th grade classes making sure that we can still prioritize the younger grades, having shared grade time and shared planning time. Um, I think that's going to be incredibly important. I think developing, you know, because right now we use a hybrid where we use both Moodle and Drupal and, and school tool, and we use a lot of different tools, and I think that we have the technology people in place now in the new system that we hired who's also a developer. He's talking about designing the killer app, really one login, one stop shop, 
public and private walled garden and not portfolio based. And I think that if we had the killer app, you know, that would allow us to push the learning even further. Um, And and so there's a lot of big plans. Um, The trick is to sort of keep those big plans in mind while also, you know, just making sure that you do the day to day of what you do better and better and better. And you put, and again, from my vantage point as principal, putting together more and more systems and structures that will allow the amazing people who teach and learn in the building uh, to thrive. That's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about EduCon, uh, EduCon sure. 2.1. You were doing that while I was in Doha, Qatar at the Flat Classroom Conference, and I've had two different people already email me that said, if you weren't at one of those conferences, that it was like an insane weekend with everything that was going on and the Ustream channels <laughs> and the chats. And so it was pretty cool to, to, be, to be at least at one of those, and I, I didn't get, get to catch a lot about EduCon. I got to check in a couple times on the on the streams coming in and out. Um, but talk a little bit about your success with it. Uh, how was it this year? How do you, how did you set it up? Um, cause I know you did a lot of, it wasn't a lot of presentations. I, I, if I remember right, you did a lot of more panel discussion type stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I think that it, it's the, the most important thing is, is that it's stands for a conference. Um, and we both for both conference and conversation. Uh, the fact that I had my cup of coffee yet this morning, I started the show. Um, so every session that you went to, we asked the presenters when they submitted their proposal, um, for the proposal that they submit was how it was going to be conversational, how it was going to be engaging, how it was going to be something that was not just standing to deliver um, professional development or whatever. So people come in with a mindset, the presenters come in with a mindset, this is supposed to be a discussion, this is supposed to be interactive. Um, and then, you know, yeah, the two sort of, two of the three big kickoff events, the Friday night panel the, and the Sunday morning panel, were panel discussions where we had experts uh, in their fields um, talking about different things. The Friday night panel was this incredible. Uh, we had uh, Jeff Hahn, who's the inventor of the multi-touch screen, um, or the recent iteration of the multi-touch screen. We had Stephen Squires, the uh, uh, leaders on the land, Mars Land Rover project. We had Malefe Asante, who's one of the premier African American scholars uh, in the world. Uh, we had uh, people from business, people from government, talking about what is the purpose of school. And that was just amazing. And that was this rich discussion. The questions that were asked after they all sort of gave their speeches were was amazing. And I, I love that. That was a highlight for me. Um, be on the Sunday morning panel with a really diverse pedagogical group of people, some TIP, Teach for America, Gary Steger, Betty Manchester, who was the state ed tech director who wrote up the one-to-one, somebody from Big Picture, and me, talking about what a school reform look like, and, and people who have very, very different visions of what school can and should be, was also just wonderful. Um, and I think those two events that were very engaging and very dialogical, to Patty Stock term, um, setting tone for walking into a session. And then the other thing is that because this isn't run by NEC or run by ISTE or run by a big organization, everybody knows that they're coming to a school. Everybody knows that um, this was planned by teachers and students. Um, I think people come with an attitude of they're going to make this theirs. I think people come with an attitude that they've got to participate, um, that they have to make it great. Um, and I think that that matters. You know, I mean, when you've got some of the biggest names in educational technology saying, hey, before we leave tonight, can we clean up? You know, because they see kids and teachers doing it for the school. 
the whole mindset of the conference, it's it's like it's it's not an unconference. I mean, there's way too much trouble complaining to call it an unconference, but it's certainly um, it, it certainly is very much an empowered group of of attendees, mm-hmm. and I think that's. That's wonderful. Do you think your attendees have a large part to do with the way that conference feels? I mean, that's one thing I'm coming off of the second year of during the Learning 2 conference. And for me, this year wasn't as powerful as the year before because, and, and I mean, you know, I just, this is just my feeling on it, because I felt like people that came to this year's conference didn't have that sense of empowerment of feeling like they had the opportunity to make this conference work for them. Where the first year we had that, where you know during the unconference sessions we had a Drupal conversation that went on for three hours, and people right. just didn't want to leave. You know, where this right. this year we had unconference sessions where people were standing around, and and then complaining there you know there was nothing to do when they were in conference sessions walking around, and they didn't feel like I didn't feel like they understood about the whole idea of taking you know taking control of a conference and making it work for you. Do you feel do you have that feeling that a lot of that is just the people that come to this conference come with an understanding of what conferences look like uh in today's world and how to make a conference their own? Um I think that that's a big piece of it. I think that the nice thing is is that um we're very upfront about the pedagogy of the conference. And so I think that, that uh because we're very upfront about that um, people are taught um, more, sort of even before they ever walk in the even walk in the door, um, what it's supposed to look like and, and what their role is. Um, we sort of reinforce that. I also think that when kids are involved and you've got students who are taking part in making it theirs, it, it, it almost um, goads the adults into doing so as well. I mean, I think I that. You know, that's it. And then again, I, I no question that we have a critical mass of people who show up to this conference who are coming wanting what we're selling. You know what I mean? Like, for lack of a better way to put it. And, and when you have that critical mass, it's easier to bring the other people along. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who show up because they've heard it's a good conference, because they've heard it's progressive, they've heard there's good things going on. Oh, hey, let me try this out. And then they get there, and, and there are so many people there that are already kind of of that mindset. Um, and and that's a good thing. Excuse me, one second. No yes, problem. Jacob. <laughs> oh, I love early morning conference calls. These are fantastic. Yeah, we've got to be. We'll probably have to get letting Chris go. He's probably yes. have to get to work and get get going on some things. So. Yeah. That's no problem. Gotcha. There's going to be a little bit of uh, just the last few minutes. Whenever we wrap up, going to be some. Um, there's going to be some uh, children's shows on the, on in the background. As Jacob is going to, I think, probably watch a little session or something. No. Well, don't worry about it, Chris. That's fantastic. We appreciate you spending your time with us uh, this morning. Is there any uh, blog post or anything that maybe you want to leave with with the the listeners of this of something that you know around either sustainability or something you've read lately that has you thinking uh, about education that maybe you can uh, share with everybody? Yeah, I've been reading uh, David Koretz's book Measuring Up, which is all about it's not so much from the internet but I think he's about where testing has become such a major, major, major um, part of the educational discussion. And he really says he's someone who's not anti-testing, which makes his voice I very important. Um, but he talks about this sort of really strange way that we do educational testing and how we're undermining our education by teaching the test. And it's an amazing, amazing text that really speaks to how you test well, 
um, as opposed to the film using it now. So uh, that's what I've been reading lately. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's amazing. It's a must read, certainly for anybody in education policy. You should be forced to read it. And I think a lot of teachers will gain a lot from using it as well. Excellent. Well, I just wrote it down. I'll add it to my reading. I'm actually headed back to the states here in in uh, February. And whenever you head back to the states overseas, that means a huge Amazon order. We take a suitcase just for the everything we got to buy from Amazon. Bring back. I'll put I'll put that one on my list. That's fantastic. Thanks for that. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll let you go. We know you've got kids and you've probably got a work day and everything else you have to do. Heaven forbid you just can't sit around and talk on podcasts all day. So. Wouldn't that be a great life? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be a great life, though, if we could just do that? So. Really appreciate it, Thank Chris, you, Chris. you uh, getting up in the morning and joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right, see you. Take care. And then it was just you and I, David. Hey. It's, I don't know if you've, you caught that the there's some, Amazon is has a big announcement in uh, the start of February, and we're hoping it's going to be the second version of the Kindle. So oh. maybe, my friend, you need to get this, the uh, Kindle 2 yeah. if they've got it. You can't even get the first one. They're, they sell out so quickly. And uh, those days of us international folks coming back with the suitcase filled with the paperbacks is might be over because I think that's the way to go. Yeah, well, I I agree, but I'm afraid I've, I've spent I've spent my uh, tech budget on the year on a on the thing called the iPhone. So I've, I oh yeah, I'm pretty much done for the year when it comes to <laughs> tech gadgets. As much as I think yes. I would, I would definitely love a Kindle. Are there any websites or anything you want to throw in there? Uh, for well, I've, I ran, I ran across, uh, God, there have been so many good ones. The, uh, uh, I can't even pronounce it, digital uh, ethnography site, uh, Professor Wesh. He has just had some uh, several really excellent usable ways to use uh, news readers for research. Uh, I'm going to be teaching IB history next year, and uh, I have my kids using online mind maps is a way to collaborate but he's he's using the um, these news readers where the kids have all their information coming in through one central source and they can share it and see what other people are doing and uh, just very usable practical uh, tools and then the other one was I ran across from someone put in a, a link to a uh, jimcarroll.com he has a uh, an article up called Future Trends where he's looking down the road at what are the trends and it's a lot of the things that we talk about in education and what the the skill base our kids are going to need to be prepared and I thought that was a very good one But and I'll add those to uh, our Digo Dijo uh, site. What about, do you have one Jeff? Yeah, I've got two. Uh, the first sure. one is the Horizon uh, Project uh, just released yeah. their 2009 findings, and I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, but that's always that's always a good one to pass on to administrators. I've always found it useful in the past, and I, I'll be using it in both of the both of the grad courses that I'm teaching lately. So I've, I'm I'm constantly changing my grad courses around poor people that have me yeah. as a teacher. You can never work a week ahead because you don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, so I'll throw that one in the chat room, and then the other one is the conference that I was at this weekend. And, you know, what Chris said there at the end about having students involved and how that changes a conference, and I can't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we were at the, I was at the Flat Classroom Conference in Doha this past weekend, and working with about 50 students from all around the world. We had America, India, Pakistan, Oman, uh, Qatar, one student from Saudi Arabia, uh, Ethiopia, South Africa, 
I think that's about it. I think there's eight different places or nine different places kids were from. And it, it, it was different because the whole conference was about the kids. It was never about the adults. And mm. I love going to conferences that are about students producing something. And I've gotten a lot out of the conference just coming to the realization of what our conference is like in this day and age where content is free and we don't need somebody, you know, like, like the way Chris has made edu, um, Educon, that we don't need somebody mm-hmm. standing up telling us things. We can go out and find yes. the information. So what's the reason why we come together face-to-face? And there's a blog post yes. coming out as soon as I find time to actually blog around here. But, um, but that was one thing that I found is that this conference was about producing something, that you needed to produce something before you left. And if you, you can head to the Ning site, it's an open Ning. You can see what the students produced in a three-day period. And remember, this is three days where when they got there on Saturday, nobody knew each other. They'd never met. They spoke different languages. They had different accents. Uh, we had kids translating for other kids. Uh, my, one of my favorite stories was that one kid spoke Arabic and no English. And his group members had to figure out how to make him a part of it. And they ended up using Google Translate on their own, using Google Translate. And they sat there at the computer and they would type in English and translate it to Arabic. And the kid would type in Arabic and translate it back to English. And they worked so well together. They ended up being one of the four finalist groups. And uh, in the end, he... They had to, and uh, everybody had to take part in the video they were making. They had to make like a sixty to ninety second video, and everybody had to take part in it. Part in it, and they, what they were going to do is have him speak in Arabic, and then put English subtitles underneath him speaking, which was fantastic. Well, the kids couldn't figure out how to do it, and so instead, this student who knew barely any English, like didn't speak it very well, um, they gave him his lines in English, and he went off in forty five minutes, learned his lines in English for the video. And the whole weekend is just full of powerful stories like that, like kids helping kids coming together. They called themselves, they called the conference um, break, um, bashing stereotypes uh, because here you had, you know, all these kids in the Middle East who a lot of kids in America or in Australia or coming from the Western world had a very negative view of the Middle East. And it was really, it was really cool to see the kids come together and they were all talking about you know, and it was just, it was the other way as well. You know, the people in the Middle East having stereotype, typical views of, of what mm-hmm. Americans and Australians are like. So it was just very cool to see kids come together to produce something and have a reason to be face to face. So go there and take it. There's artifacts all over the place. There's pictures. There's videos. Um, you'll get a real sense, and you can vote for the project that you want to see go on. So which, whichever one of the four finalist teams wins, that becomes uh, the flat classroom project will take that on as one of their keys in uh, a future flat classroom project. So I just had to throw that in there because it was just an amazing weekend uh, that I was at. And so take a, take a look at that and and even leave a comment for a student. They did a fantastic job. So that's, you know, that's what we keep saying where we're going. The kids are going to bypass us and uh, take over and that's the way it should be. Now I just add a little personal note. I'm developing a unit on uh, the middle ages and, my two primary uh, curriculum writers are my two sons. They're very creative, and they do Dungeons and Dragons, and we're going to do, I'm going to do some simulations. I'm splitting my class in half, and the kids are going to have different uh, roles from different classes from uh, Europe in that time. And so they're helping me come up with what the scenario should be and, and, and how the kids are going to have to research to understand how they might, like let's say it's a... Uh, one group is having to defend against the other group, one manor against a castle, something like that. And it's my boys are, are coming up with great ideas. It's very exciting. And, I just, and that brings us back to having the kids as part of the uh, uh, 
interviewing new teachers and part of the decision-making for a school. And as we've said before, they need to be a part of uh, the curriculum development as well. Uh, what they, Just not what they're going to say about how to use technology, but let them be creative. And that's a real-life experience, just like the, all these children you were with. Uh, they're going to be coming together in groups and having to problem-solve and trying to figure out, okay, it's not going to work this way. Well, we've got to go that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the skill skill set they've got to have. Yeah, absolutely. Nope, I couldn't agree more. So, All right, well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode, a good 45-minute conversation. And, again, appreciate Chris uh, Lehman getting up early in the morning in Philadelphia uh, to, give a, to give us a call and, and talk with us, and I really appreciate him. And, and, of course, David, it's always great to catch up with you every other week. So we'll be back in two weeks. Do you remember? Do you have our topic? What our topic yep. will be in two weeks? Uh, boy, it's really tied in well. Uh, the topic is, or question is, how to make the shift systematic and sustainable in our skill, our schools. Which clearly, Chris just gave a lot of information on that. And but I think it's one we can just keep talking a lot more about. And we're going to have Jim Reese who has been an international teacher. He was in Belgium for a long time, and he's now at uh, Washington International School. And he's also the education coordinator for the Harvard Project Zero Classroom and Future of Learning Summer Institute. So Jim is a 12-month-around-the-year uh, working guy, and he's going to join us to talk about systematic and sustainability in keeping our schools shifted. Excellent. And that's going to be on Thursday, February 12th. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. Just making sure I've got my dates right. My calendar's filling up pretty fast here. So, all right. Well, thanks again, uh, Chris and David, for another great episode. And until next time, this is Shifting Our Schools. And keep uh, keep shifting those schools. 